Timothy, uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy in chapter 1, from verse 1 to 7. Now, I wonder if you could um, imagine yourself in a situation where, where you knew that your time on earth was coming to its end, that you would soon depart this life. Um, and don't worry, this is not as morbid as it sounds. Um, but if you were able, you, you're aware of that, and you're able to gather around you all your family, your friends, the people who you loved and cared for, maybe even the youngest of them, and you were able to speak to them. And I wonder what would you say? What were the kind of things you would say? What, what would you want to say? Something maybe that would be remembered. What would it be? Um, it's an interesting exercise. Something I've done quite a lot. And we have some scriptural examples of, of this. And I was thinking about Joshua. You know, the book we've been studying in, in the morning here at St. Pete's. Um, and uh, some of the astonishing things we've been learning from it. But at the end of the book, when, when Joshua is about to die, um, he gathers, first of all, the elders and the leaders and the judges together, and then all the people. And he, he knows he's coming to the end. So this is almost like his last words. And he, he lays out for them all that God had done in bringing him to that day, reminding them of how... how God had given them the land and the olive groves and the vineyards that they didn't plant, the cities they didn't build, and that it was all God's doing. And after laying out what God had done throughout all of my time, he came to the crux of his message, which was, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. And then, of course, he goes on to say, but if if, you'd, if you're not going to do that, you can choose a god. You can choose one of the old gods from the land we come to. Maybe some of the, the gods from the land we're going to. You can choose. But you remember he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, I think in some ways Second Timothy is a wee bit like Joshua's speech because it seems to be Paul's last words, his last recorded words. And this time not announced to all the people, but uh, put down in a letter to his his dear son, Timothy. And Paul's relationship with Timothy is a fascinating one. Um, Timothy, you remember, was a a co-worker and a co-writer with Paul of seven of Paul's letters. And he came from uh, Lystra. And possibly he came to faith when Paul was preaching there during one of his visits. And we know, as we've read, his mother Louise and his grandmother Eunice were both Jews and believers, and his father was a Greek who didn't seem to be. And he was, he was well thought of. We know that he was well thought of by the church, as Christians, his home church, and the surrounding area spoke well of him. And they obviously held him in high regard. And Paul valued him too, and took him on his second missionary journey. And he was, he was trusted to be sent on a mission to Thessalonica and later to Macedonia. And it, it was at Corinth where he seems to have suffered some serious opposition. And he was uh, placed in the church at Ephesus, which was particularly hard. And he suffered real persecution there, even spending a time in prison, we know. 
he, he knew what it was like to be in a war. Uh, as we were thinking this morning, it's so easy for us to forget that we're in a war. Well, Timothy knew that. And it was in the face of that that Paul wrote this letter to him. And when you read the letter, you can't, you can't fail to notice Paul's deep concern, his, his great burden for Timothy, but, but for the future generations. Um, and that, that's a fairly human, natural worry, you know, to be concerned about those who'd follow on, um, those yet unborn. You know, what kind, of, what kind of world will they have to live in? What will they have to face? And people have all these concerns, you know, that your children would be safe, that they would have financial security, that they would have the basic things in life, there would be educational systems and health systems and freedom and all of these things. But of course that was not what occupied Paul's mind as he as he lay in that prison cell and, and waiting on his execution, as we know from later in this letter. It was, it was the gospel that he was fired up about, the promise of life in Christ Jesus from verse 1. That was what concerned him. And he was concerned that it, that, that message would be carried forward, unadulterated, not twisted, not changed, not changed into a non-gospel, so that the future generations would hear and would repent, would believe, give glory and honor to God and serve him. That, that was his, his great burden. And Paul must have been aware that the church was entering a, a, a dark period of, of horrific persecution. Nero had already begun his program of terror against the Christians, and he, he practiced unbelievable cruelty, if you read the accounts. But it was probably... The more subtle attacks of Satan from within the exercise Paul most, because it was so easy for the gospel to be diluted and drained of its significance. There would be, there would be those who would twist the truth to their own way of thinking. And there would, there would be those who would listen to, her, who would have itchy ears, as Paul says, keen, keen to hear something that they wanted to hear. Make something that maybe would make them feel good or maybe something that would make their sin not seem not so bad. So there was something uh, momentous at stake here. And he knew that it would be Timothy, his true son in the faith, who would be the one charged with, with carrying it forward and delivering it to others, to reliable men, as he says in chapter 2. Men who will be qualified to teach others and then to us. So, do you get something of the burden, this, this heavy load that weighed so heavily on the apostle here in his cell, in his own desperate situation? And we mustn't lose sight of that, where he was writing this letter. And yet... Unbelievably the, the, unbelievably, the focus of his thoughts was on his own true son and the task that he was about to carry forward. His, his deep concern was for the church of Jesus Christ, which 
humanly speaking, was what was, was on a knife edge. So let's, let's consider these words in the first chapter of the epistle, and especially, especially thinking of verses 6 and 7. After um, reminding Timothy of how he, Paul, served God as his forefathers, uh, pointing back to the faithful witness of the saints and the prophets throughout the centuries, as well as, as, well as reminding Timothy of his own heritage and faith, his mother and his grandmother, in other words, pointing back and, and reminding him of the continuing story of salvation um, so that this was not a religion that Paul invented. No, it went back from the dawn of time and came to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and was now moving forward in the end times, the times that we are in now. And so, for this reason, says Paul, I, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Elsewhere in First Timothy, Paul speaks of the laying on hands of the church of the elders. And here it's my hands, as if to remember, remember it, I laid hands on you. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very powerful picture, isn't it? Um, something of a, a mystery about the laying on of hands. Something about commissioning for the task. Something about, about sending out. Maybe something too about taking hold of this baton I've given to you. Carry it safely. Don't drop it. And make sure you pass it on safely to those in front. Now don't let this gift, this gift of ministry and teaching and pastoring and leading the church because that's what we believe it was don't let it smolder but fan it into flame which is another powerful picture too earlier this summer um, we were away my son and myself and my one of our grandsons um, on a wild camping trip Um, it was a sort of Men of three generations of the kind of, you know, one of these male bonding kind of things. <laughs> and um, we were wild camping and we did it well. We did it well. If you, when we left, there was no sign, apart from maybe some crumpled grass, there was no sign of there being anyone there when we left. Uh, and we had a, we cooked on top of a fire pit, which a very clever one which we were given, which had uh, stainless steel rods you clipped together and it had a, a stainless steel mesh to hold the fire. And not a spark went on the ground. None of the grass underneath were singed. It, was, it, was, it worked wonderfully. Except the wood we had was pretty damp. So it was a struggle to get this little fire to go each time. And we ended up with lots of red faces and feeling faint, puffing, puffing, puffing away. And then, wow! It bursts into flame. And it's something like that. The fan, fan, fan this flame, this flame of the gift that God has given you. And it wasn't that Timothy had let this flame go out. And there's no suggestion of that. But he must keep it alive and burning. And it sounds quite a challenge in a way. A lot of hard work. And yes, it would be, without a doubt. But, but God would be with them. We're thinking again of Joshua. That was what God said to Joshua. The Lord your God will be with you. 
wherever you go. The Holy Spirit will be with you. The Holy Spirit is in you. And here Paul mentions in verse 7 three characteristics of this Spirit in three words. And if you're looking for three points to sermon, there they are. Power, love, self-control. So why did, why did Paul describe the gift of a, of, a, of a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline or self-control? Why these three? And that, that admittedly was the question I asked myself when I set my mind on, on the subject for this sermon. And, and I can't say that I have really found the answer at all. But let, let's, let's see. Let's look at them. Let's see how this goes. First of all, a spirit of power. Uh, and I guess at first, um, that quality, that characteristic might, might surprise us, you know, power. Um, the suggestion is that maybe Timothy is maybe was a bit of a weak individual, young and compared to others, maybe, uh, with a dodgy health, perhaps. Not maybe so. Uh, but, but power, when you speak of it today at least, is... It's not considered a virtue, you know, something to be sought after. In fact, when we hear power, or when we hear about powerful people, we immediately think, uh, don't we, of people being heavy-handed, of domineering, of overbearing, bullying, abusive, uh, maybe even tyrannical. And in today's thinking, power is, is lots of negative connotations. And it might, it might could be because we have a, a jaundiced view of power, because... We might be too influenced by, by the thinking, whether we know it or not, of, of some of our 20th century philosophers. I was thinking of um, Duluth and Derrida and Foucault and others. And I hope you're impressed that I can name Czech French philosophers. Uh, to be honest, I, I haven't read any of these people, although I did try and read some of Foucault and um, I was a bit intellectually challenged, I'm afraid. Um, but one of the thoughts, I think, that comes from some of that thinking, and, and it goes deep into our thinking today, um, is that power seems to affect every aspect. It comes into every aspect of our society, and especially our relationships with each other. It seems to be that power is the thing. You know, it's almost as if there's no good or evil. There's no good or evil. There's no right or wrong. There's just power. And all the problems in the world come from an imbalance of power. It's not just that the big oppressors and the weak oppressed, but in every relationship, in marriage, even in intimate relations, in education, in work. I don't think it's ever said, but the implication is that having power is a bad thing and that power should be should be leveled. We should all have equal power. And this is maybe just my fancy, but deep down I also think that there's a, a recognition that God, God has all the power, and that's, that's not exactly fair, and that we should be equal to him. And you see where that comes from. Now, I may have got that all wrong, and if you've studied philosophy, you can put me right. Um, but that's not, that power, that's not what Paul is speaking about here. No, this, this, is, this power that is a characteristic of the Spirit is from God, who is, 
who is all-powerful, who created the world by the power of his breath, his word. And, and the power that we see in Jesus. You remember, as John the Baptist recognized that when he pointed to Jesus and said, there is someone coming who is more powerful than me. And it was, it was the power of the Spirit that overshadowed the Virgin Mary so that she bore a son. And a very striking verse when Luke records when Jesus returns after his temptation to Galilee, he said he returned in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said, you don't, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus had the power to heal and gave power to the disciples to heal and drive out demons. And the people were amazed. What power is this, they said? That he gives orders and the demons come out. And if we are a follower of Jesus, he has given that power to us, that power. The spirit within you is a spirit of power. And then a spirit of love. And that's such a wonderful counterbalance, isn't it? That these two things are held together. Power and love. Of course the word, again today, love has lost so much of its meaning in our language. And our, our idea of what love is is so muddled up between emotions and feelings and will and desire and of course used all the time in the worst of art and greeting cards and pop songs and movies and so on. And it's so easy for us to be, to be influenced by all of that and for our understanding of love become a, a parody of the reality. Well, the, the scripture tells us that, that, that God is love. And his love permeates the whole of the human story from its, from its beginning. Our little international uh, Bible study group this week, we were looking at Genesis chapter 3. And even in, even in that, that dark, possibly the darkest story in, in the whole Bible, God's love and his patience and his mercy still shone through. And listen to what um, the Apostle John said in these verses from John chapter 1 and at verse 4. Chapter, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It is this love, of course, that we see in Jesus in all his dealings with 
individuals and his compassion and his seeking the lost in his sacrifice for rebellious sinners. And, and earlier, of course, John in the same letter says, this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That love, the spirit of that love is in you. The spirit within you is a spirit of love. And the third one, um, self-control. A spirit of self-control. And if we find power problematic, um, self-control would be too today, I'm sure. We, we talk a lot about self, um, about, and yet little about self-control or self-discipline. We talk about self-importance, self-identity, self-worth, self-esteem, self-expression, self-fulfillment. All of these things are valued and to be sought after. But somehow, somehow self-control is not. In fact, people would be quite hostile if you put it up there as a virtue to be aspired to. It seems a very negative thing and suppressive too. Something belonging to the bad old days. But of course, the Bible has something quite different to say. Um, even from the Proverbs, one of the Proverbs, chapter 25, like a city whose walls are broken, to, broken through as a person who lacks self-control. And Paul, Paul spoke a lot about self-control. It, in fact, when he was under arrest, when he was making his defense at his trial before Felix, Felix uh, when he was speaking about faith in Christ and righteousness and judgment, and when Felix had enough, when he was afraid, it said, he was, and sent him away, he was speaking about self-control as well. And self-control was one of the bookends of the catalogue of the, the fruits of, fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, self-control. Because, because being self-controlled, being self-disciplined is not a natural state for us. We maybe think it is, but it's not. We can, we can live our lives in the illusion that we are under our own control. But it is just an illusion. We are not. I mean, do you think you're self-controlled? Can, can you control your tongue? Can you control your desires? Can you, can you control your thoughts? No, it's not something we have by nature. In fact, in fact, the opposite. Remember how Paul in Romans chapter 7 says the, these words, chapter 7 verse 21. So I, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What, what, a, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, it's easy to look as if we're self-controlled and deceive ourselves and maybe others too but we are not 
if we just took one honest look at ourselves, we would see that we are not. We need God's Holy Spirit in us to give us self-control. And of course, like the other attributes, like power, love, self-control is what we see perfectly in Jesus Christ. Remember these words from Philippians? Who, being in nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That's, that's self-control. The spirit within you is a spirit of self-control. Now, I'm not a prophet, and I don't, I don't know what the future holds for us, and I can't see what's round the corner or what's up the bend. Um, but I do have a growing sense that we are coming into something big that will maybe make COVID look like a, a pinprick. It's the feeling that something, that something big is coming, and maybe we're not prepared for it. Maybe we're not ready and we haven't maybe prepared the next generation either. You see, um, I, I, I'm a post-war baby. I'm what they call a baby boomer. And I think it would have to be said that my generation have never had it so good. Yes, yes, I know individuals and individual families and peoples have extraordinarily difficult times and things to face. But, but over the peace in the UK and other countries too, we've never had it so good. We, we haven't known a war, apart from the far-off places. And while our early years might be considered a little Spartan, we had enough to live on. We could see the steady growth in wealth and comfort and convenience. There was a spirit of optimism, that, things were, that the trend was generally upwards. And we thought that was a given. We had education. It was free. We learned to read and write and count and think things out for ourselves. And we had the sense that if we were moderately bright and worked hard, the opportunities were there. Um, and of course, there's the astonishing advances in medicine and health of the population. You could, you could live much longer in your 70s and 80s with a, a level of fitness that would be unknown to those who went before. And there was structure and order. And you generally believed that the authorities were benevolent and could be trusted and had your best interest at heart. And above all, there was a sense of, of, of freedom. Uh, now, I fear that my generation have got so used to so many good things that we tend to believe that this is, this is normal. Well, it's, it's not normal. For the, it's not normal for the rest of the world, and it's not normal for most of history. And it's not normal for the Christian church and the rest of the world now Ask, 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 ask Hugh about the partners that he's in touch with in, in Malawi or Mozambique or Myanmar or, or in Pakistan. Uh, ask him about the stories there and the people. The rest of the Christian church is, is suffering and, and who is to say that it's not coming to us too and maybe, maybe sooner than we think. So how are we to be prepared? How, how are we to be ready? Well, going back to my little scenario I painted for you at the beginning where you're about to leave this earth and you're able to speak 
some words to the people around you, the next generation perhaps, what would we say? What would I say? Well, of course, we would say to our Christian believers, hold these five things. We'd say, hold on to the word of God. Read the Bible. Meditate upon it. Soak yourselves in it. Never stop praying. And make it your habit to join with other believers regularly. And make it your habit to be doing good intentionally. And when you have the opportunity, and every opportunity, be ready, be ready to tell others of the Saviour, to be point to Jesus. Yes, I would tell these five, five things. But I would also want to say, to remember, to remember that if you are a believer, if you, if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've given your life to him, you have the spirit of the living God dwelling within you. And this is a spirit, he is a spirit, not of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-control. And then you'll be ready for anything. Let's pray. Father, we don't know what the future will hold for any of us. But we know you do. And we know that we can trust you. And we know, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit. Help us to remember that. That you have given us a spirit of power and a spirit to love and a spirit of self-control. And so that when, when persecution comes, there's no doubt it will, we'll be ready. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.